Welcome and thank you for taking the time to listen to the Word of God released through Randolph Barnwell. Randolph is the founder and senior elder of Gate Ministries Durban Central. Be encouraged to access free additional resources for your edification at randolphbarnwell.com. Great grace, peace and mercy from Christ be multiplied to you as you listen to this teaching. great to be together as the family of God. Amen. It's always a privilege for the church to come together in this fashion. Please excuse my voice. I'm just battling the flu. I want to continue. A warm welcome to all the visitors. I trust you are welcome. It's great to see you all. Amen. Vernon, so great to see you. Amen. And all our other visitors, a warm welcome once again. I want to bring to a conclusion the emphasis, excuse me, on pride that we've been focusing on recently. While I say I will bring it to a conclusion, I want to wrap up this particular segment and next week kick off with something that's related to what we're going to do today. However, that I will treat as a separate focus area. For the sake of our visitors, we've been exploring up to, I think, more than 30 expressions of pride that we've uncovered in the Word of God. Pride is a very dangerous thing. The most predictable thing we know about it is that it will lead to a fall. Bible says before a fall comes pride, or pride comes before a fall. So it's, it's predictable that the proud man will fall. The other most certain thing we know about pride is that God will oppose you. So God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the, to the humble. Therefore, we must seek to extract every indication of pride from the midst of us. Every indication of pride must be banished from the fabric of our spirits. The Bible speaks about pride as a state of one's spirit. right? So we are to be humble, it says, in spirit. If you are to be humble in spirit, then obviously pride will also then seek to dominate or characterize one's spirit. The proud who is, who is proud in spirit will also be proud in soul or what the New Testament says, do not be haughty in mind, right? But it starts with the state of one's spirit. And however the state of your spirit is, so will the state of your soul be. However your spirit is, that will be the state of your soul. And then in your body, you will exhibit behavioral patterns that seek to animate or exemplify behaviorally the internal state of your spirit and your soul. So we've been looking at a whole range of things, and I don't want to get into the list now for the sake of time. I want to just bring conclusion to this, and some of these things might sound repetitive, yet there are subtle differences between them. And I trust that as we've been moving along, you've been dealing with each, with each issue. Yes? Yeah. Yeah, I myself have been dealing with certain prideful positions within myself that I did not know was there. It's only as we look into the law of God's word do we realize, hey, that is true of me. Mm. You know, the Bible calls itself a mirror, and it shows the man as he truly is. Right? All man's ways, the book of Proverbs says, seem right in his own eyes. But it's the Lord, it says, who weighs the hearts and tests the spirits. He weighs the hearts and he tests the, the spirit. Prayer of David is what we should all pray in Psalm 139 when he said, O Lord, search me 
and see. Everyone say, search me and see. This is Psalm 139, towards the latter part of that fairly long psalm. He says, search me and see if there is any wicked way in me. What he is saying by that prayer is, there are some wicked ways in me. Although I'm serving you, I'm your son. There's some wicked ways in me that I cannot see. Unless you search, I will never know them. What he's essentially saying is take your spotlight and shine your spotlight and unveil to me, bring to my view, things about myself that are displeasing to you. Those unsavory things about you. Now, you might think you're the nicest thing going. <laughs> There's none like you in all the earth. Zephaniah, I think it's 2.15, says, Woe unto that rebellious city that says, I am it. Right? I will bring you down. Many people think they are it. You think you're the most, the hottest thing going, and there's none like you. And you think you got it all together until the Lord brings a spotlight and He shows you just how depraved you really are. To the church at Laodicea, I think it is, God says, you say that you are rich and that you're in need of nothing, but look how poor and bereft and wretched you really are. And so all of man's ways seem right in his own eyes. And I don't know about you, but I've really been praying, Lord, if you are going to give me more grace. Now, it's more grace we want. Not so? This is a grace series. It's more grace we want. The pursuit after grace demands a deliberate dealing with prideful states. The pursuit after grace demands a deliberate dealing and eradication of prideful states within us because uh, the state of pride is pricey <laughs> because it's a grace repellent. It's like grace wants to come, but if the Lord sees pride, pride pushes grace back. Humility is a grace attractor, right? I put a post on, on Facebook the other day which says something to the effect that humility is a grace attractor, a grace receiver, and a grace keeper. Humility is a grace, watch, attractor. If grace is looking for a spot to land, it looks for humility to be attracted to. It's a grace attractor, it's a grace receiver, and it's a grace keeper. You can receive grace but lose it because of pride. But the state of humility will ensure that you retain the grace. Right? In other words, another way of framing it is humility is a grace receptor. Everyone say receptor. It's a grace receiver. Say receiver. Right? It's a grace retainer. Say retainer. If you know, work with ours, it recruits grace. It's a grace receptor. It's a grace receiver. And it's a grace retainer. Okay? If you're an R person and your name is Randolph and your wife is Renee, then you tend to think in R's when you <laughs> want to encode things. Actually, I was thinking of that, thinking, Lord, how can I? I always look for ways to express things most ideally that make sense. So, again, I want to say grace, humility is a grace receptor. It's like antenna that need to go up that can receive the signal for grace to land. Humility is a grace receptor. It's a grace recruiter, recruited unto itself. It's a grace receiver and it's a grace retainer. What you receive, you will lose, you will retain if you abide in the state of humility. So remind your neighbor, stay humble. 
Grace must not leak. Pride calls grace, causes grace leakage. You can receive a whole lot of grace, but because of a prideful state, grace can leak. Right? It, you can, it can progressively leave your life if you do not foster the environment most ideal to contain it, to keep it, to sustain it. Okay? So I want to encourage you, remain humble. Remain humble. I want to just focus on one or two things that perhaps I did not explain to my mind uh, properly last time. A few weeks ago, I said to you, one of the indications of pride is when you consistently harp on the past. Particularly where relationships have been affected and there's tension or hurt in relationship. And in a new argument, you revert to the past and you rake up the person's historical failure and you bring it to bear upon the present circumstance. What you attempt to do is you erode the person's worth or you erode the person's attempt to state their argument by belittling them because see how you failed in the past. See how you messed up. The Bible says, leaving the things which are behind, I press toward the mark for the prize of the high calling which is in Christ Jesus. We also read a text in Isaiah which says, God said, behold, do not call to mind the former things. For behold, I will do a new thing, declares the Lord, and will you not perceive it? The inability to perceive the new thing is, is caused by the preponderance on the past. It says, do not ponder the things of the past. For behold, I will do a new thing. Some of us are so past-focused, God want is wanting to do something new. You cannot even administrate the view because the past is so filled your mind with an architecture, a construct of how you view life. You cannot even administrate the new thing because you are too past-minded. And I said this to you, if you want to live life in the fast lane, being accelerated in destiny and purpose, you cannot simultaneously live life in the past lane. You want to live life in the, in the fast lane, don't simultaneously live life in the, the past lane particularly when there's issues for which have been resolved, where there has been repentance and there has been resolution to things. Let it go. Tell someone, let it go. I felt in praying last night that the Lord wanted me to say this again. Some of us, although I preach this, some of us are still holding on to certain things. Here's the warning of the Lord to you. Grace will pass you by because you, you might say I'm not proud and therefore God cannot resist me. I am humble. He needs to give me grace. You can say that, but you've got to diagnose pride. Right? So pride holds the person to the historical failure. Right? And do you remember Onesimus and Philemon? The book of Philemon in the New Testament is a short book. It's one chapter. Please read it. It's only one chapter. The whole book, Philemon is a master. He's a businessman. Very successful businessman at that. And he had a worker called Onesimus who was unprofitable. And he went AWOL, absent without leave. He kicked down, right? He balegged, right? Did not fill in any leave forms and he's nowhere to be seen. 
So there's a strained relationship between the master and the servant. He meets Paul in Rome, this guy, the servant Onesimus. He encounters the gospel, gives his heart to the Lord, and starts to make significant strides in his growth in God. That is the reason why the book of Philippians is in the Bible. Paul picks up his letter, his, his, his pen, and he starts to write to this gentleman called Philemon or Philemon. And he says, and it's a short chapter but a powerful book, eh? he says things like, concerning your servant, my brother Onesimus. Right? He says this, he once was unprofitable, but now he has become profitable. Therefore, he says, I beg you, Philemon, receive him back, not as a servant, but as a brother. And in his brotherhood, he will still serve you. But I'm paraphrasing the letter. He's intimating you will be the recipient of his new level of productivity in your business. He's going to, you're going to be the recipient of his new level of productivity. But he says this, once was unprofitable, now, now profitable. And Paul even jokingly says to him, oh, you owe me one. Read it. I'm paraphrasing, but literally say that, oh, oh, Lehman, please take him back because literally, bro, you owe me one. You owe me a favor. I don't know what happened between Philemon and Paul in the past, but it seems like Paul uses, pulls rank. And he says, do me this favor, receive the brother back, because you know, you know, bro, you know, you owe me one. Take the, take the brother back, right? Take the brother back. And Paul even says this, if he owes you anything, charge it to my account. You know what Paul actually says, late in the book, Paul says, I know, Philemon, that you will not only obey me, but you will go way beyond what I ask you to do. Now, if Philemon is standing there and holding Onesimus' past against him, you see, when you hold someone's historical failure against them, and you don't upgrade in your perception of what God has done in the person's life, your view of the person is outdated, obsolete, it's actually Jurassic. Hmm? God did not need Philemon's permission to change Onesimus. He changed Onesimus without consulting Philemon. And I say this to you, God doesn't need your permission to change those who hurt you. So if they hurt you, and you still after a view of them, you have this outdated perception of who they are and what they represent. Watch. You will never get to benefit from the new man and the new woman that they have become. You see, sometimes the grace for Philemon is locked up in Onesimus. If you take him back, Paul is saying, you're going to receive such a level of new, uh, an injection of productivity into your business that ordinarily you would not be able to because now you're receiving not just a servant. Now you're receiving a brother. Not just a brother. He's my son. He's my son in whom I've imputed the grace of God. You're receiving back a changed, a changed man. So tell someone, forget the past. Forget the past. Did God need the 12, the 12 disciples who walked with Jesus for three years? Did he need their position, permission to change Paul, Saul of Tarsus? A guy who what, killed Christians. He was against the church. God changes him and makes him an apostle too. 
And did you know they had to extend the right hand off? Fellowship to Paul, because God gave certain things to Paul that were not even given to the twelve. The whole mystery of the church. The whole mystery of the church. Everyone say the mystery of the church. He speaks about this in, in, in Ephesians 1, 2, 3, the book of Colossians. That revelation was not given to the twelve. It was given to Paul. But if you hold Paul's past against him, you will never be the recipient of the grace that Paul can give you. You know, this, early this morning, I got up, and so I was four, I was up, praying in my mind. I went to bed praying. I, in fact, went to bed with Ephesians 1, 2, and 3, praying loudly in my room, praying it recurrently, like I told you on Wednesday. Ephesians chapter 1, chapter on the audio Bible. I have an audio Bible on my laptop. still in the sound of the God's words. And I, I fell asleep on there. So I woke up still in the spirit of prayer. It's like, although my body was resting, but my spirit was in constant communication, in constant communication with the Lord. And I, I, I put the note on Facebook very early this morning. I wrote, do not be less, be more merciful, or show more mercy to people, and be less judgmental. That's what the Lord, I woke up with that thought. Show more mercy, and be less judgmental. When you are judgmental, what you are saying, you're literally saying, I'm adopting a proud, arrogant position. You deserve punishment. I mete out the judgment to you. And yet the Bible in James chapter 2 and verse 13 says that mercy triumphs over judgment. And the Bible says this, to those who are merciful, they will obtain mercy. Right? Uh, who was it? other guy. On Onesophorus, Onesophorus, search for Paul when Paul was in prison. The Bible says, Paul says, he risked his life to find me and he refreshed my bowels. And Paul says, I pray for him that he would find mercy in the day of the Lord. How do you find mercy? You get mercy by being merciful. It's simple. Think about it like this. Jesus said, to the measure that you measure, to the measure you meet out, it will be measured back to you again. I always say to people, I would rather err on the side of being overly merciful than too judgmental. Because the time when I fail and I'm going to need it, I would have had to by that stage have banked up a whole lot of mercy. Both in the minds of men and before my my heavenly father. Okay? So ask your neighbor, have you banked sufficient mercy? Leave the past. Leave the past. And I say this to you, just carefully. Just, just, just watch carefully. I say this to you. Here's the thing I really want to just bring to your attention. If you're taking notes, it's Genesis chapter 41 and verse 50. I'll read the first few verses. Now before the year of the famine came, two sons were born to Joseph whom An Anisnath, the daughter of Potipharah, the priest of On, bore to him. Joseph named the firstborn Manasseh. For he said, God made me to forget all the trouble of my father's house. And he named the second Ephraim. For he said, God has made me fruitful in the land of my affliction. There was a seven-year famine in Egypt. The year before the famine started, remember? The year, year before the famine started, 
So this was probably in the seven years of plenty. Remember those seven years of plenty and seven years of famine. So Egypt is thriving according to the dream. Remember that, that, that the Pharaoh had. Right? Egypt is thriving. And in that time, Joseph, particularly the year before the famine, the seven-year famine would ensue after the seven years of prosperity. Joseph has two sons. First boy comes and he calls the name of the boy Manasseh, right? And he says this. It says, for God has made me to forget my trouble, right? So Manasseh, he's got a fairly good name. The meaning of his name is, God causes me to forget my trouble. And, but the second part of his name, I believe, is not so pleasant. It says, God has made me to forget my trouble and my father's household. Right? Did Joseph forget the trouble that his brothers caused him? Yes or no? He did. Secondly, did Joseph forget his father's house? Yes or no? He did. Not so? And he names the boy Manasseh. Very soon afterwards, they get a second boy, and he names the boy Ephraim, and Ephraim means doubly fruitful. So there's, it's all in the seven years of plenty. Think about the context. There's lush growth. Joseph's prophecy is fulfilled, right? He's a ruler in Egypt. And you would think that the first executive decision, he would have used all his power to make a journey back to Canaan to see how his dad doing. Because I've last seen my father when I was 17 years old. I'm now 13, 30. 13 years ago, my brother sold me. They dealt harshly with me. I'm now second in command to the greatest political and military empire in the whole world. Surely he could have used his influence to go see how, how his dad doing at least. Never mind the brothers, but at least how is his dad doing. He forgot so much. He, he, he pressed the delete file in his mind that they ever existed. Right? To Joseph, I called my first boy Manasseh because God, he says, God, and it's true, God made me to forget all the trouble of my brothers and my father's house. Now listen carefully. Tell your neighbor, do not forget your father's house. Listen carefully. The father's house concept through the house of the father, purpose is effected. He is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Jacob is Joseph's dad. Jacob is the last, the third recipient of patriarchal promise. And he got 12 sons. Joseph is one of them. The other, the other 10 at least uh, did Joseph in. And yet Joseph, when he makes the statement, I disconnect from father's house. He's saying, I disconnect from patriarchal lineage. I disconnect from purpose vested in Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I am so blessed I can survive without that. Be careful of success that causes amnesia about what truly blesses you. Because many people, they come to success. And because he is successful, his second boy is doubly fruitful seven years of plenty joseph is economic is the minister of economics in in egypt he's the man right 
singularly he's going to be the reason why Egypt will arise to a financial powerhouse in their day. Much going for him. And amidst, please, I want to encourage you, brethren, don't become mesmerized by success. Don't become disoriented. And you forget basic principles when God starts to bless you. Joseph was blessed, but, listen carefully, he forgets his, the trouble caused by his brothers, and he forgets his father's house. Only when, listen carefully, in the midst of the seven years, I think, when the brothers came down, only when he saw them did he remember them. He so factored them out of his memory. Now, what, what is that? Did the brothers hurt him? Yes or no? Come on, talk to me. Did the brothers do him in? Yes or no? Right? If you don't deal, he, Joseph did not deal with those issues. He thought success would cover up for that. You can't be successful without being willing to deal with core relational issues that you need to release and overcome. Right? Don't allow success to blind you to these things. Sooner or later, it will catch up with you and you're going to have to face the music. Yes? Right? And so when, he, when they come and he remembers them, and his first question to them is, does my father still live? Because he realizes, I am successful. And remember, after they reconciled, the first executive decision is, get daddy down here and do not delay. Get Jacob. I need Jacob. Why Jacob? I need prophetic patriarchal blessing upon my position in this land. Without that, my purpose here is meaningless. Do you know what the first thing that Jacob did when he came down? The first thing? Right? You know the story? He's half dead, Jacob, by this time. He's sick unto death. He's in his bed, and the strength is ebbing away. And they say to him, Joseph is coming to see you. But he's bringing his two sons with him, Manasseh and Ephraim. And the Bible says, and Jacob lied in his bed, but Israel sat up. Israel and Jacob are the same person. The one is sick, but the strength of God in the, in the same one sits up on the bed. There's an outstanding matter before he dies that he has to administrate. He has to, this is early in Genesis 48. If you know Genesis 48 and Genesis 49, they're two of the longest chapters in the book of Genesis. And most times it's who's speaking. It's Jacob speaking, prophetic destiny. He's imparting to Joseph, Manasseh, Ephraim, and the rest of the brothers. You see, you can, have the, you can be at the height of success. But unless you take, listen carefully. That is why people say, I got my own mandate, my own ministry. In a household of faith. Yes, you do. But unless what you do out there in the marketplace comes under the oversight and auspices of prophetic apostolic fathering grace, what you do out there will not find relevance. It's relevant because of your connection to apostolic patriarchal fathering grace. Right? And so when Jacob comes, Jacob prophesies over the boys. Right? Jacob prophesies over... Um, firstly, Joseph, Ephraim, and Manasseh. What did Joseph bring? Who did he bring to the right hand 
of Joseph. Who's the firstborn? So he positions Manasseh at the right hand, firstborn. Ephraim is secondborn. Right? But I demonstrated this to you a few weeks ago. When he prays blessing, he's blind. He cannot even see. But what does he wittingly do? The King James says, and he wittingly crossed his hands. With insight and perception, he said, no, my right hand of blessing, the right hand should go on the firstborn. In his mind, he said, this is how I'm thinking. Manasseh, you cannot be firstborn because you represent one that forgets father's house. No firstborn can operate in firstborn power and stature if you forget father's house. So he wittingly crossed his hands and he puts the right hand on Ephraim and he blesses him as the firstborn. Ephraim was firstborn in rank. Manasseh was firstborn in time. You want to operate in your firstborn status. I want to encourage you, never forget your father's house and all that is associated therein. What has all this got to do with pride, grace, and humility? <laughs> Listen carefully. I believe a root of pride welled up in Joseph. A root of pride welled up in him. Because see how God is blessing me in my thing. See how God is blessing me in my domain without bringing that thing or domain under the oversight and auspices of apostolic father in grace so that prophetic word can direct it and empower it with, with grace. Secondly, I want to encourage you, don't sweep things under the carpet without you having to deal with it. To do that, you might think, well, I'm not the personality to do that. I want to submit to you, it is possibly a subtle indication of pride in you not to deal with the hurt caused by your brothers. Okay, now we all have those kinds of people in our lives, not so? Guys that have hurt us. If you don't, listen carefully. Here's the word to this house. I'm saying a lot's going to hang on this house in the future, but I want to ensure there's nothing in this relational context that's going to impede the flow of grace. Yeah? If, if somebody has hurt you and you've not dealt with it, either by forgiving the person completely or even telling the person and making the person aware of your offer of forgiveness, right? You're going to have to cross that bridge sooner or later. It's going to come around, and you're going to have to negotiate that. All I'm saying, this word has come to us, although I've said these things before, the Lord's saying, again, the Lord's saying, because I need my people to overcome this hurdle. Let's do it now so we don't do it later. Tell you never do it now, so you don't do it later, right? <laughs> One last thing. If a brother offends you, do not use the offense of a brother as leverage to disconnect from father. Jacob did not injure Joseph. The brothers injured Joseph. He allowed the hurt of the brothers to disconnect him from, from father, okay? Allow the hurt of the brothers to disconnect him from, from father. I want to encourage you, never lose perspective. The hurt of a brother can always be dealt with. But it mustn't be used as leverage to disconnect from Father. Because in Father is purpose, not so? In Father is purpose and, and grace. Amen. I want to see the house matured. Amen. I want to see all of us grow, you know, without relational tension. Some of you are having nightmares about certain people. And you know you need to confront the person. 
Just deal with it and get it over with. Just deal with it and get it, get it over with. Amen? Now, just quickly, I'm going to work through just some of these things. We shan't be long because of time. Last week, I spoke to you about covering your brother's sin. Okay? Everyone say, cover, cover your brother's sin. Okay? Covering your brother's sin. And essentially, I said there is, when your brother fails, do not broadcast it. Close the mouth. And seek to help your brother. Forgive him and seek to help him redemptively. Okay? Do not, do not disclose it. I trust that you've passed that test this week. Yes? Does some of you have occasion to add your two-cent piece to a drama story? <laughs> but you chose no. I've listened to my spiritual father, so I will not contribute. If someone's nakedness is being scandalized conversationally, I will not add my two-cent piece. If I'm going to say anything, I would rather say, let's not talk about the brother or sister in his absence. Let's rather pray. Tell you never cover sin. So the Greek word there means to hinder knowledge or to stop the mouth. So if I cover someone's sin, I don't talk about it. If I have to talk about it to someone, listen carefully. If I have to talk about it, it must be to someone of great maturity in God. And it must be spoken about redemptively, not scandalously. Your heart must be to redeem and to help or to, to pray. Amen? All passed that test? Okay. Ask your neighbor, are you covering me, my sister, my brother? Am I covered? Am I covered? Right. Okay, quickly, let me run through the last few expressions of pride. Okay? We have much to think about today. Another expression of pride is unteachable. The Bible says that knowledge puffs up. Puffs up is an expression of arrogance. Okay? And some people know so much, they think they know it all. This is the proverbial Mr. Know-it-all, right? Have you ever met a person like this? Right? Uh, I, I, the, one of the greatest things you can say is, I don't know. I will find out. I, I don't have an answer for you right now. I'm not aware. I'm not knowledgeable. But I will come back to you. Pride will prevent you from saying that. Right? I've said this many, many, many times. Let me study a bit more, especially things theological. A question is posed and say, I'm not sure, I have an opinion, but let me just study to get a more concrete view, and I will come, come back to you. So I want to encourage you, be teachable, okay? Be teachable. But here's the thing. Many people are unteachable because the upgrade of the new knowledge comes from someone outside of a known sphere. Now that known sphere could be many things. It could be race. Someone from a different race upgrading you. Someone from a different nation upgrading you. Someone from a different gender as you. For some males, they'll never take uh, instruction from a female and some females from a male. Right? Uh, for some, even within a particular race or nationality, certain classes within it, they'll never take an upgrade of knowledge from one which they deem as beneath them. All are expressions of, 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 of pride. What about age sphere? Some of you won't take correction from someone younger than yourself. You know, sometimes God tests our pride by causing a child to correct us in a particular way. How about your own, your own, your own children correcting you as parents 
sometimes. Yeah, we, the, Our children are like an education to us, not so parents. They teach us so much, and sometimes by how they behave, they literally are points of correction in our lives. Yeah, And all the children said, come on, all the children said, this is your chance, come, now or never. <laughs> okay. Amen. So, or someone from a different denominational sphere or network sphere as you, I want to encourage you, sometimes God will use the most unlikely source to bring correction to you. But when that, in that moment, you must say, yes, Lord, I, I, I submit to that. Another one is pride in doing works, evidence, pride, sorry, in doing good works, evidences a lack of wisdom. Let me, let me, let me quote the verse and you'll understand. It's Proverbs 11 verse 2. It says, when pride comes, then comes dishonor. When pride comes, then comes dishonor. But with wisdom, is with, with the humble, is wisdom. So if you are humble, wisdom attends you. But if you are proud, it says dishonor is attached to pride. But with the humble, wisdom comes to the humble. In the Bible, wisdom is always associated with humility. Always. An example, James 3.13. Who among you is wise and understanding? Let him show by his good behavior, his deeds, in the gentleness or the meekness or the lowliness, the humility of, of wisdom. So, for example, if you're doing good works, don't bring attention to it. Uh, do it as unto the do it as unto the Lord. The proud will bring attention to it. And this verse equates that with dishonor. But the, the humble does good works silently uh, with a view as working unto the, as, as unto the Lord. So don't bring attention to yourselves in, in when you do good works. Okay? Facebook is not for everything. <laughs> right? Be selective in how you use social media. Okay? Because it can become the platform for a whole lot of prideful expressions. And we see it every day on social media. So just be very, very aware uh, of that. And then I wrote here, proclivity to, sh to make comparisons. So if you are inclined and leaning towards always making comparisons. So you have a proclivity, a tendency, a leaning towards making comparisons. And this usually to highlight the superiority, your superiority, as over your perceived inferiority of the other. So I compare myself with, with, Lind, with Lyndon because I deem myself as superior to him. I perceive him as inferior to me. And watch, I am inclined to make a comparison between us to endorse my perceived superiority over his perceived inferiority in my mind. Notice, I keep using the word, not superior, not inferior. It's perceived superiority and perceived inferiority. Because no one is lesser than the other. But if you, if you put yourself up in any respect, in any respect, if you place yourself above another, you judge the other as less than yourself, and that is pride. And now, how does this manifest? I've got to give you practical things because it manifests by you making comparisons. You might think, right, no, that's not me. But the moment you make comparisons, 
you have manifested this trait. The moment you say, us and them, they like that, we not like that. The moment you go there, pride, red flag should wave in your spirit. Don't go there. Tell your neighbor, no more comparisons. Never ever say, even in private conversation with your wife, hey, but they're not like us, eh? Oh, but we do it differently. The moment you go there, you've judged the other. You've judged the other. Listen carefully. You can express a concern without judgment. That's different. But when I say comparisons, comparisons basically underscores the fact that you have put yourself as better than the other. And that is dangerous. No more comparisons. I taught you a few weeks ago, rather adopt a humble mindset. Romans 12, 3, it says, esteem everybody as better than yourself. Right? Just remind in case you've forgotten. I see this other person next to you. You are better than me. So no more comparisons. Amen? You know, um, always adopt the humble position. Don't compare networks, spiritual fathers. Some are even idealistic over their spiritual father more than others. And in doing so, you belittle the other. That's not God. Not God. You esteem everybody equally in the Lord. Everybody has a particular mandate, particular function, doing a particular thing in the earth. Amen. In Paul's language, he said, I planted, Apollos watered, but who gave increase? In the Corinthian context, Paul and Apollos had significant contributions. And you know what he said? He addressed this comparative issue in, in, in Corinthians. He said, how, how is it, brethren? You know what he called them? He says, you are carnal. How be it you are carnal? When am I carnal? Paul says, because one says, I'm of Apollos. One says, I'm of Paul. One says, I'm of Peter. And there's still another group that doesn't need any men. They say, we are of Christ. And he says, who died for you? Did Paul or Apollos die? Christ. And he says this, who is Paul? Who is Paulus? Are we but simple ministers of Christ? I planted, I founded the Corinthian church for 18 months, one and a half years, singularly. I planted you. I left, Apollos came for a stint. He says, I planted, Apollos watered, but who gets the glory? God gets the glory. Okay, now, I don't know, it's not in my notes, but there was the Holy Ghost. Listen carefully. A, an expression of pride is to be so loyal to your spiritual father that you disdain others. Never go there. Never go there. Never speak disparagingly of one in your bid to be loyal to the other. No. Do you love all men of God? Yes? Come on, tell me. We love all pastors. Yes? All men of God. We love them. We love the servants of the Lord. Any form of prejudice. Now, please, I'm going to hold this one for a session all by itself. Any form of prejudice. Racial prejudice. National prejudice. Ethnic prejudice. Class Gender, religious prejudice, age prejudice, disability, prejudgment, prejudice, pre, before the time. Judas means to judge. You've judged the person before. You've formed an opinion in the mind, right? But as the Lord speaks to you now, please repent of this. Don't have any racism in your heart or prejudice um, against anybody. Be free from all expressions of, of pride. 
many of us aren't racialistic, we aren't racist, but we, we think racially. Even that you must repent of. <laughs> Do you know that we're not a non-racial church? We're not a multicultural church? We are the church of the living God. Even to use those terms means our mindsets are so scarred from things in the past. We're still viewing things racially. To use the term non-racial means you're viewing things racially. It's like a... Do you love everybody here? I will prove to you... I won't have time to get into from Galatians 2. I will prove to you from the Scriptures how the word grace is used extensively in that passage and it's used in the context of where a major apostle succumbed to pressure on on racialistic prejudice towards a particular group. And Paul said in that context, you have frustrated the grace of God. You have frustrated grace. Come on, we all want more grace. I'm giving you keys, guys. Everyone say keys. If you do these little things, I'm telling you, your grace content is going to escalate. Seriously escalate. Right? It's going to escalate significantly. Never judge someone after the color of their skin, the texture of their hair, their education background, what car they drive, their, their, their level of dress, anything, how they speak. You deem all men equal. If, you're, if you master that mindset, I guarantee you, grace of God will flood you. Grace of God will, will flood you. Amen? Then hatred, quickly. Hatred is a form of pride. I know that nobody here should hate anybody. Hey? Nobody here hates anybody? Nobody here hates anybody? Hallelujah. Well done. The Bible says if you hate someone, you're a murderer. Do you know bitterness can degenerate to resentment? And then anger. By the way, anger is another form of pride. Okay, I won't have time to talk about it. Right? But if, if we hate anybody, Listen carefully. The basic principle, this is from Genesis 9 and verse 7. It says the following. Whoever sheds man's blood, by man's blood he shall be shed. For he is in the, in the image of God, did God make him. Murder in this verse is prohibited on this basis. That every man is made in God's image. In this verse, God's, God prohibits murder because every man carries an aspect of the image of God in him. So to murder the man will be to disesteem the image of God in the man. All right? So whenever you hate someone, listen, think about it like this. I am not perceiving the representation of Christ in the other. Right? And the Bible is very clear. If you hate someone, you do not have life abiding in you. You're not saved, in other words. You don't have the principle of life abiding in you. And no murderer will inherit the kingdom. Right? Amen? So I'm glad we don't have any murderers in the house. No murderers, no haters. Hallelujah. Just remind the person next to you, I love you. Amen. Then another one is, just carefully, quickly, uh, divisive behavior. Divisive behavior. You, you cause division wherever you go. You set up one against the other. Check these scriptures out. Proverbs 28, 25. An arrogant man stirs up strife. A proud man stirs up problems between people. You know, I don't know how some people operate. Some people simply cannot thrive if everyone is getting on. There has to be drama. There has to be 
someone against another. There has to be a story. Did you hear? Do you know what? That one said to them, there just has to be some niggly thing. For them, it's, it's, un, it's intolerable for them to have harmonious, joyful, loving relationships. Please, I want to encourage you. I want to have time to teach you. The Bible speaks about this, this position very, very strongly. There, listen, let me educate you. There are some people in the world that are deliberately intent upon sowing division. And not in the world, in the church. They deliberately want to set up one against the other. And that is an indication, according to this verse, it's an indication of pride. The arrogant man stirs up strife. Proverbs 13.10 By insolence comes nothing but strife, but with those who take advice is wisdom. Now, yes, the, the verse I really want to focus on. Listen to this. Proverbs 6 from 19, from 16 to 19. Listen carefully. There are six things that the Lord hates. Everyone say six things He hates. This Bible very clear here. When God sees these six things, the Bible says God hates it. Six things the Lord hates. Seven that are abomination to Him. Number first one on the list is haughty eyes. Haughty eyes is arrogance or what the Bible calls a proud look. Right? The Bible uses body parts very often to illustrate pride. Yeah, it says about the eyes, your perception. In other words, your haughty eyes, how you view others, you always view them as inferior to yourself. God hates that. Seven things the Lord hates. Number one, a haughty eye. Number two, a lying tongue. God hates lies. Number three, hands that shed innocent blood. Okay? Number four, a heart that devises wicked plans. Number five, feet that make haste to run to evil. Right? Next one, a false witness. You give a false witness against somebody who breeds out lies. And the last one, one who sows discord amongst brethren. God hates a person that sows discord amongst brethren. Amazingly, the first thing and the last thing on this list, and some of the expressions in between, all indicative of the prideful state. Yeah? I want to encourage you. You know, I've had occasion. Don't let your ear be the dumping ground for someone's divisive behavior. I've had occasion. People come to me and say, did you hear? I'll do every. I'll hear the story. Let's say I'm not sure what they're going to say. I hear the story. And if I see there's a spirit of division here, there's a spirit that if I entertain this, it's actually going to polarize two individuals. I will use everything in the wisdom God gave me to... To stuff it out and to bring the two individuals to, together. And to educate the person that we shouldn't be divisive in our thinking. But we must be, we must always be reconciliatory. And seek to redeem. And seek to, to reconcile. Okay? So I want to encourage you, never ever be divisive in your, in your behavior. Another thing, quickly, we're almost done. Accommodating of tense or broken relationships. I've spoken to, this, to you about this. I won't, I won't say much. And next, the next thing, ingratitude. Everyone say ingratitude. When you are not thankful. If you are not thankful, I'm suggesting to you, you're full of pride. Because ingratitude, you know when you say thankful, thankfulness deliberately places emphasis outside of you. To the source that helped you. So you're thinking outside of yourself. But the proud man cannot do that. 
to give acknowledgement to another who aided your process demands that you acknowledge the other. But if you don't, a proud heart finds it very difficult to say thank you to the other. Right? Ingratitude. And like I said, if you read Romans chapter 1, if you're taking the if you're taking note, it's Romans chapter 1 from verse 21 to 31. Ten verses. I don't have time for that now. It speaks about the degradation of mankind. The whole ten verses speaks about the plummeting of morality, the plummeting of virtue, the plummeting of righteous behavior. Each one does what is right in his own eyes. It, it speaks about sensuality, about excessive unbridled sexual uh, pleasure. Of men with men, of women with women. It spells it out in the first chapter of Romans chapter 1. And what the Bible says, the reason for all of this, it says, for when they knew God, they did glorify Him as God, and neither were they thankful. Ingratitude is a doorway that opens your world to a whole lot of evil vices. The moment you stop being grateful, that's why I always stress, we stress it to our boys. You rather err on the side of being obsessed with being grateful for every little thing in your life. Express it to people. I thank you for what you mean to me. I thank you for what you do. Thank you for that. Thank you. Remember the, the, the ten lepers were healed? How many came back to say thank you? One, 90%. I say 90% of the church are ungrateful based upon that, that text. One came back and the Bible says with a loud voice, he, he glorified God. We're all cleansed. We're all ten lepers cleansed. One came back to give thanks. Why? The Bible says when he saw that he was healed, he came back. Ask your neighbor, what do you see? Let me just say, if you don't see the extent of what God is doing, you will not be grateful to the degree that you should be. Yeah. Others were cleansed. He saw that he was healed, not cleansed. The others just saw external skin, skin disease, gone. Leprosy healed. Our skin is like a baby's skin. They saw external cleansing. This one, the Bible says, saw that he was a different Greek word. Yes, his skin. But he saw beyond the physical into the fact that God was healing his soul. And he came back. Jesus says, were they not nine? Healed. And the Bible says he fell at his feet with a loud voice, gave him thanks. I feel our expression of worship in this house must go to the next level. Some of you are afraid to lift your hands. I must give a teaching one day on the lifting of the hands. David said, let, my, let the lifting up of my hands be like the evening sacrifice. I would that men pray everywhere, Paul says, lifting up holy hands without wrath and, and doubt. When you do this, you signify something in the heavens. This physical gesture has got spiritual counterparts in the unseen world. I'm telling you, brethren. Hallelujah. Come on. Are you going to worship God and praise God like you never have before? Listen carefully. I pray the eyes of your understanding will be open. Some of us are not doing it because we are not seeing the, the extent of what God is doing. And the Bible says, what did Jesus say to that guy who came back to say thanks? Jesus said, get up. Go your way. Your faith has made you whole. He went from cleansing to healing to wholeness. Because he gave thanks. Who wants to go to wholeness? Eh? Bring completeness. Never ever. There's one thing. 
This is basic. But I'm amazed at how so-called mature people can develop such ingratitude for some of the most basic things. Yeah? Be grateful. Be grateful for all that you have. Amen. Okay, listen, I won't complete the list. I'll make the notes available to you. You can read it and allow the Holy Spirit to speak to you. Is that fair? <laughs> One last thing, though. Two last things. Hallelujah. You know me by now. I'll just mention the principle. Your refusal to help the poor is an expression of pride. Sodom is known for many things. You say the word Sodom, people think lasciviousness, perversion, unbridled sensuality, all of that. This text says, Ezekiel 16, 49. Behold, this was the guilt of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters, watch, had arrogance. Was Sodom arrogant? He says, this text says, she and her daughters were arrogant. But how does this text define arrogance or pride? It says, they had abundant food and careless ease, but she did not help the poor and the needy. Thus, they were haughty. Haughtiness here, arrogance is described as, you have the means, but when someone poor and needy comes into your world, you turn a blind eye. I submit to you, scripturally, you are arrogant. The Bible says, Paul said, um, in the book of Acts, it says, they urged me, I forget the context, but the verse goes like this, they urged me to go to the Gentiles and they to the Jews, because Paul's apostleship was to Gentiles, Peter and others were to Jews. So he says, they urged me to go to the Gentiles, they to the Jews, and they said that I must never forget, I must never, I, I must always remember the poor. And this, he says, I was the, all the more eager to do. You know, how many of us dismiss poor people? Now, obviously, you've got to be very discerning. Right? Beggars and people that stand on robots. Not everybody is there by choice. There are some valid needs. You've got to be very discerning as to how you respond. But if you discern a valid need and you have the means, I want to encourage you, minister your substance to them. Minister your substance to them. Amen. The Bible says he who gives to the poor lends to the Lord. It says if you help the poor, you are lending to the, to the Lord. Wonderful, powerful statement. Eh? People don't like these teachings. I don't know why. It's all in the Bible. Right? We have our set crew of beggars that come home. Right? <laughs> Renee says our house is hobo headquarters. On the bluff. They literally come every week. And we do it. Why? I know. Don't judge the person. Don't say, you know, you should have used your advantage in the apartheid area. Look where you are. No, don't judge the person. Think like that, you are thinking racially. Some people have simple, valid needs to which you must respond. I will never forget when I was in first year varsity, I used to get off at the bottom of King Edward Hospital. And I would walk up Kenyon Howard. But as you go past the hospital, there was this uh, gentleman of Zulu descent, severely sick. He literally slept there on the corner, like a cardboard house, etc. My very first day, first year of varsity, I walked past him. And the Lord said to me, minister your substance. So I gave him my six slices of peanut butter bread. <laughs> right? And I did so every day for the whole year. Why? I recognize his need. My lament was, um, 
I think the second year I came, he had died in the December of that year. He was very sick. And I wish I had more means to help him, administer to him in other ways. But I just knew the guy needed some bread. So whenever I left, I always packed two slices. I knew he'd always be there. I would always have to pass him. I want to encourage you. He who lends to the poor, he who gives to the poor, lends to the, to the Lord. Don't bypass a poor person. Demonstrate your humility by helping. Help within your means and even help be beyond your means. My favorite thing now is whenever I travel, you know when you go to the airports, these guys that clean the toilets, welcome to my office. They say to you, welcome to my office. And they're all, they're all proud of, in a good way about how they administrate. And I just love it. I can't wait. Now I go to live whenever I travel, I'll have 50 rand in my pocket to give to these people. Right? And welcome to my office. So at one stage, I gave the guy 100 rand. And just, I like to see the, just the joy in his face. So they were, I bless you. And I would say, I appreciate the work you're doing. If you weren't here, this place would be a mess. I value you. I value what you're doing. God bless you. You know, the Lord spoke to me um, on Friday evening. Naaman dipped in the River Jordan seven times. You know what Jordan means? Jordan means descent. It means to flow downward. And the River Jordan is a symbolic picture of humility. Naaman was asked to dip himself seven times. And the Lord said, if ever I heard God, God saying, Randolph, I need you to dip seven times into descent, into humility. You think you've covered all your bases. And let me just say this. I must be honest. The Lord's reminding me every day of things I need to adjust. And say, the Lord said, well, you think you've covered all the bases, but I will show you. But I need you to dip seven times in the river called flowing downward, the river called descent, the river Jordan. And I began to think about this. The Lord reminded me of these three things, just quickly. When Lot separated from Abraham, where did he go? The Bible says he looked east and he saw the plains of the Jordan Valley. Now every river has a river valley. And the Jordan River Valley, apparently, I did some research yesterday, is probably one of the most fertile river valleys. So if you want great fertility, learn to abide in humility. Tell your neighbor, if you want great fertility, abide in humility. God was saying to me, as lush as the Jordan Valley is, I will cause great productivity as long as you can maintain this, this descent. The, the, the Jordan Valley was also a, a demarcation. It was a boundary that separated the promised land from, from other parts of geography. Okay? It was a line of demarcation. It was a line of distinction. The Lord was saying to me, humility is going to be your distinction. Humility is going to be that, that, that disposition that separates you from the rest. Please, brethren, I, can, I want to beg the church this morning. If ever I would want you to master anything, master humility. It'll give you wisdom. The Bible says it'll give you honor and great wealth. will come to the humble person. Like the Jordan separated, the, the river separated, the promised land from others, so will humility be your distinguishable, distinctive feature. If you're ever going to be distinguished from others, the distinctive will be humility. Be that thing that separates you as God's own. Okay? Will be that thing that separates you. 
John baptized in the river Jordan. So did Jesus. Well, not Jesus, but his disciples, the Bible says. It says Jesus' Jesus' disciples also baptized in the river Jordan. And you know when they baptized, they were literally baptizing disciples. Baptism in some respects is an indication that the one being baptized is willing to embrace the teachings and doctrine fully of the one who baptizes him. It was, it was known in that culture. And I want to encourage you. They were baptized into the Jordan, which depicts humility, which depicts uh, descent. But Jordan also is a significant crossing in the Bible. People cross the river. Remember the last crossing? When, when Israel came out of Egypt, they crossed the Red Sea first. And then later, 40 years later, they would cross the Jordan to go and possess the land. You will never come into possession until you learn to cross humility. Nothing will be had, nothing will be attained until you learn to baptize yourself in this crossing of this river, the river of humility. I would say to you, amidst all that you heard, whatever you've heard, just do it. I've shared with you so many principles. I've hinted at little things you ought to do. There have been little innuendos here and there, if you heard carefully over the past few weeks. If you simply do the little, I will encourage you, you will enter your promised land. The Jordan, will, you will enter that. I think the Jordan also was the last place that Elisha followed Elijah to. The Jordan. Significant spiritual location. And the Lord said to me, Randolph, abide in a Jordan mentality. Everyone say lowliness. Say descent, okay? I want to encourage you. Amen. But whatever the Lord prompts you to do, simply obey. May the blessing of the Lord be your portion. Amen. You will be blessed. Grace will attend you. Amen. Next week I'll speak more of submission. The Lord spoke to me very seriously about the whole act of submission. I'll give it to you from a biblical basis. And you will see how that just that disposition will unearth for you a large reservoir of the grace of God. Amen. Hallelujah. Stand with me. Lift your hands to the Lord. We've heard much. Today is a wrap-up of this whole thing on pride versus humility. We've heard, I think we've had about almost 10 weeks of talking about pride versus humility. I know the Lord has dealt very seriously with our hearts, privately and corporately. And I pray that there will not be any among us. The Bible says, there's a verse in Zephaniah where it says, I will, I will extract pride from your midst and I will leave behind a remnant that will be humble. My people which are called by my name, humble themselves and pray. Then will I hear from heaven, heal the land, etc. I can't get this fertility thing out of my head because that's what the Lord said to me. If you abide in the valley of humility, it's a valley, it's not a high point, it's a low point. Productivity and fertility will be your portion. He gives grace to the humble man. Grace to the humble. Father, let's lift our hands to the Lord. Father, we pray your blessing upon the congregation. We've heard much. We've heard so much. Today, we want to humble ourselves. I want to ask for forgiveness for any time we were proud in any respect, Father. We ask you for forgiveness in your name. 
Help us to be humble consistently whenever we face tests. I pray, give us the grace even now to live these principles out. Give us the ability. Father, bestow upon us grace to be obedient to this word, I pray. We receive it, Father. You are, Lord Jesus, you are the humble, most humblest of men. You said we must learn of you, take your yoke upon you, for you are meek and you are humble in spirit. We ask that your humility would be our strength. For some of us, we find it so difficult. So now we ask you, give it to us, the disposition that is yours. We impart that grace to obey this word to every single person in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. I, I pray great fertility on every family. I pray great strength. I pray great productivity in every household that is represented here. I pray none of us will know uh, lack, scarcity, uh, arid, dry, desert conditions. But every, I speak the fertility of the Lord. And Lord, as we, as we master states of humility, I know, O oh God, that you will make us fertile, not just in our personal lives, in our workplaces, in our business lives. More importantly, we pray in the realm of doing your purposes in the earth. Make us fertile. Make us productive. Let your will run swiftly in the earth, I pray. For we ask this in your name. We thank you. Amen.